So welcome everyone to the latest episode of HPAC Engineering's new podcast series, HPAC On The Air. My name is Rob McManamy and I'm Editor-in-Chief of HPAC Engineering Magazine. We're now in our 92nd year. This new monthly online feature aims to bring you even more insight into the news and issues that affect our industry, as well as the opinions of trusted thought leaders that you've come to know on our print pages. Now with that in mind, HPAC On The Air this month welcomes Rick Fedrizi, Executive Chairman of the International Well Building Institute and founding co-chair of the U.S. Green Building Council, which he helped to launch in 1993. Now, at that time, Rick was already a seasoned industry veteran, serving simultaneously in an executive role at HVAC giant Carrier Corp. Now, nearly 30 years later, we are thrilled to be able to speak with him now as a leading advocate for healthy buildings at a moment in our history when building owners and occupants have arguably never been more focused on the concept of wellness. So, Rick, uh, uh, welcome to HPAC on the Air. Thank you, Rob. Great to be here. Thanks. Now, now there's so much we could talk about, but our time is limited, of course. Uh, still, I think many of our listeners might appreciate a bit of a history lesson. Uh, <laughs> could you please describe a bit about how, even just about how the U.S. Green Building Council came into being way back when? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and, and actually, I have to credit my, uh, my first uh, job with Carrier Corporation uh, as, uh, as an organization that actually helped uh, in many ways, launched the U.S. Green Building Council. And what happened was um, I had been with the company probably, uh, uh, you know, maybe 10 to 15 years at the time. And I was given the job uh, of uh, that. I woke up one day and they said, you are going to be our new head of environmental marketing. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, could you tell me what that is? And they said, well, we're not really sure. But, um, but the CEO at the time uh, at Carrier had a, uh, a good opportunity with GE Lighting when he was there. He wrapped an incandescent light bulb with a recycled uh, content uh, wrapper and called it the Eco Bulb. And they made a lot of money selling those. So he wanted to do the same thing with air conditioners. I didn't really have many resources back then. There were no chief sustainability officers. The job didn't exist. Um, If you went to the bookstore, which I did, um, finding books on sustainability didn't exist. Business meeting uh, the environment didn't really exist. There were, you know, some strict environmental books. There was Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. There was Aldo Leopold's uh, Sand County Almanac. And then uh, almost as if it was a gift from God, uh, there was this new pile of books put out on a bookshelf. And one of them was by uh, an author named Paul Hawken, and it was called The Ecology of Commerce. And what was beautiful about that book is, is he stated very clearly that it was absolutely appropriate to be a capitalist and an environmentalist. The business was the single largest cause of some of the most uh, 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 horrible uh, uh, environmental um, uh, degradation that we, we were seeing. So business must be the solution. And the idea was incentivize business to become better business partners and so forth. And this book actually gave me uh, the marching orders. I went back to the management at Carrier. I said, I've got a plan for how we can become uh, a, um, uh, a green leader in this field. And uh, I remember the CEO saying, well, that's, it was July at the time. He goes, I don't care what you do as long as we're the green leader by January. And the (laughs) January was the annual ASHRAE show. And that year it was going to be in Chicago at McCormick Place. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I had to figure out how I was going to make care. This was actually, uh, the, the issue on the table at that time was not even climate change. It was ozone depletion. So, so ozone depletion was front and center. And we knew that was a refrigerant issue we had to address. But the idea of climate change didn't, wasn't a part of it. So what we had to do is we had to go in and look at our product line. And I went, I knocked on every door of every product manager. I said, I wanted to know a a variety of things. Has your product improved energy efficiency recently? Does it have better acoustics? Does it add certain value to air quality, thermal comfort, ventilation, filtration, whatever? Um, Is there any recycled materials in this? Are there any recycled content uh, 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 things or plans for the end, end of life cycle? Um, 75%, 80% of the folks slammed a door in my face. They didn't really, you know, want to spend a lot of time that way. But, um, Rick, can I ask I, what, what year are we talking about at this point? Oh, late, yeah. late 80s or? Yeah, it had to be 89, uh, 88, 89. Okay. Um, so what I decided was because I am basically a marketer by training, I said, let me take those, I think there were six areas, five or six areas. Uh, that I was looking at energy, acoustics, refrigerant, recycled content, and so forth. Let me create these really cool stickers, these decals. And I went to McCormick Place that morning, and I had these beautiful stickers, green and white, you know. And um, I went to each product that I had done my own research on because the product team wasn't helping me. They thought I was I was irritating at that point. <laughs> and I, um, I walked from product to product and I added my stickers to what I believed. It was my swag on what I believed that product was performing environmentally. And the minute I did that, product managers were chasing me down all over McCormick. Like, what are those stickers? And, and the, the, more, the more exciting moment was when they said, why did that product get three and I only have one? And it was this moment where where the lights went on that there's a way of, of, of certifying uh, or, or creating a credential around something that someone will see value in one thing versus the other. So long story short, that was the moment that, uh, that Carrier launched a, what I felt was a credible program because we, we actually had a, a tag, a, a moniker that was called working for a better world inside and out. The operative word was working. It's like a verb. We, we don't have all the answers. We probably will never have all the answers, but we were going to try to put our best foot forward. And in doing so, we got a lot of media attention. Uh, and in many ways, I think, and especially in the HVAC industry, it kicked off this whole green revolution and what was possible there. Because I wanted to do a better job for my company at, the, at that point, Carrier, I started looking for opportunities and I met this guy, David Gottfried, who had this great idea. And his idea was let's create an industry group, uh, bring everybody to the table, energy, um, uh, architects, engineers, developers, building owners, product manufacturers. Wow, a place where product manufacturers can come to the table. Uh, state and local and federal government officials, um, um, universities and, and, and retail establishments and everyone come to the table, let's understand what this whole environmental opportunity is for real estate and and realize today real estate is a, is a $2 trillion industry. It's, it's, it's the largest single asset class we have available to us today on the planet. 
So, so starting with real estate, if we could make a meaningful environmental impact there, we could actually do something huge. And that was how the U.S. Green Building Council was born. And that idea of those labels, those stickers, and, and I won't say that they were, it was a one for one, you know, I brought that in and that became lead. But then the conversations about what was done at Carrier and the ability to understand that labeling system, mm -hmm. it was a very easy transition to think about the best way to define a green building is going to be help people understand uh, how much energy, water, waste, materials, uh, acoustics, all of the elements in, in buildings that you can, you can say, uh, determine how it performs environmentally is something that we could do. And so at that point, seven years in, LEED was born. Uh, and, uh, and a couple of years later, I took over as the CEO of US Green Building Council and, uh, and ran it for almost 15 years. Now, when you say seven years in, does that put us around the, when, starting from when, from 93 or? LEED, from... yeah, uh, LEED was actually introduced to the market in um, 2000. Okay. So, so it was around 93 that we started thinking about LEED at that point. Okay. And, uh, and, and what is this, the square footage of buildings around the world now that have LEED certification? Is, is it? I want to say 19 or 20 billion square feet is what uh, LEED has available to it right now. Wow. And that's, that's certified space. It's, it's, a, it's just an unbelievable story relative mm -hmm. to um, market transformation. I'm sorry. Yeah. So you, that was 15 years, right? And then you say, yeah. And then you, you made the transition over to the International Well Building Institute. Yes. Um, and so let's let's talk about, uh, I guess, a, I know a question you get a lot is the difference between LEED certification and well building certification. Just talk a little bit about the about wellness and and, uh, and where I the idea for IWBI came from. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, the thing is, after Rob, after 15 years of running U.S. Green Building Council, it was it was really the time that I chose to, uh, you, you, uh, we talked earlier about the, the book that I wrote, uh, Green Think, and mm -hmm. it was uh, the time where the organization, uh, uh, USGBC, was healthy, had money in the bank, had a great team of people uh, running it, and, uh, and I felt this is the time I would like to not really retire, but to, to take a, uh, a, a little pre-retirement thing where I could do, go back to my consulting business, which was called Green Think, I could go out and talk about my book a little bit more. I could get involved in uh, a variety of things and, and kind of, of pick and choose my next steps. Um, I was then approached by uh, 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 Paul Shiala, who is the uh, CEO of uh, Delos organization and, and IWBI is a, um, a subsidiary of Delos. Um, and it was basically in the way of, you know, I really love what you were able to do at U.S. Green Building Council. And, and because of that, um, we felt that a more laser-focused approach to health and wellness would be an, an incredible opportunity uh, to advance in the real estate sector as well. Um, when I started thinking about it, you know, I, I, I remembered very well in lead, you know, the credits that were associated with the ability to um, uh, look at um, health and wellness, most of them under the lens of air quality, uh, some in the materials and toxins area. And in doing so, um, I had the ability to look at trying to figure out 
how much further we could go in all of this to have an entire rating tool focused specifically around health and wellness. And the other thing is I had a lot of questions people were asking me, you know, like, well, what is the difference? Like, why are you, why are you ad advancing a new system when you've got like a system like LEAD? And what, what it became very clear to me, and I've tried to help others understand, is LEAD is a, is a program that is, is firmly committed to planetary health. And WELL is a system firmly uh, uh, committed to human health. And the ability to take planetary health and human health and separate them is ridiculous. They actually must go together. There's, there's a connection. You cannot have a healthy planet without, without you know, healthy people and vice versa. So the idea that we would, we would create the International Wellbuilding Institute, we would create a rating tool called WELL, um, it really did come uh, from the fact that there was a tremendous uh, opportunity in this in this field that we could deliver uh, preventative medical intentions in every type of building space from the smallest affordable house to the to the largest uh, uh, office tower. Um, so in 2015 the well standard was delivered and in the last five years has become really the world's largest certification body uh, for healthy buildings. Right now in five years We've got over 2 billion square feet of certified space in over 90 countries. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a really exciting thing to see um, that kind of, of, uh, of growth in such a, a fast amount of time. And I think it has a lot to do with the world that we, we live in today. Um, we spend 90% of our lives indoors. That's a, that's a statistic EPA gave us years ago. And today it's more true than ever. Um, and we looked at the health and wellness paradigm through the lens of the built environment, um, that, that health science and building science, uh, health science being medical professionals and doctors, would come together with building science folks, architects and engineers, and ultimately we would have uh, this collaboration. We studied air and water and lighting and acoustics and, and surface cleaning and biophilic operational uh, opportunities, even, even human resources policy. And we map that all out against the person, the human, and, and against the respiratory system, the cardiovascular system, the immune system, uh, the cognitive, digestive, and even your sleep patterns and outcomes. Um, and it's a, it's, a really, it's a really exciting story right now. Um, and and we, we fully engage and support uh, the advancement of LEED, I would say most well-certified uh, buildings uh, are, um, are uh, also LEED-certified buildings. Um, developers know uh, this idea that you can't do one without the other. And, and to be a true leader and, and to uh, uh, attract and retain the, the right kind of tenants uh, to build the superior products that most good developers want to be known for, that lead in well and, and, and around the world, other green building rating tools like BREEAM and Green Star and other things like that are all a part of this. Now, when you say to, uh, you know, to attract and retain uh, uh, folks into buildings, that also naturally goes into the, I mean, right now we're also looking at downtowns across, uh, across the world really, I guess, coming out of the pandemic as to what, uh, what downtowns are gonna look like. 
Sure. And I, and I think uh, um, the whole issue of health seems to have, have, have gained greater, well, certainly it's an understatement to say it's get, gained a greater profile now, especially as far as people going back into buildings. How do you feel that, uh, I mean, I, I would assume that the, uh, there, there's a sense that, uh, that coming out of the pandemic now, that, that whether it's lead or well, or, or well, I guess even more so well, uh, coming out of it, that that will be even more important now for, uh, for building owners and, and uh, real estate developers to, to, to try to occupy their buildings. Yeah, Rob, if we were having this conversation uh, a year ago, March, um, you and I would have been, I would have been talking about um, well in a, in a little bit different way. At that point in time, it was growing quickly and it was advancing because it was it was a new shiny object. Um, it is very quickly in one year gone from a nice to do opportunity to an absolute must do opportunity. Um, we've got a team of, of about 100 people. Three, uh, three quarters of which are in New York City, but the other parts are uh, in Europe and in Asia and Australia and, and China. And, um, and when you look at the demands on us right now, the growth of the, the uh, certifications, the number of people becoming well-accredited professionals, um, the ability to look at uh, a tool that we introduced to the marketplace um, just just about a year ago called a, a health safety rating. It's not the full-blown well system, but it's a way of looking in a, in a post-COVID world, how do we make it safe for people to get back into buildings? And how do we, how do we look at cleaning and sanif- sanitization, um, emergency preparedness opportunities, health services, air quality, and, and, and so forth, and, and put those in, into a package that, that, that can be evaluated by any uh, business owner, uh, university, retail establishment, restaurant group, major stadiums have taken well HSR up in a huge way, Yankee Stadium becoming one of our very first uh, certified organizations. And, and so that, that product is helping people identify that let's use the Yankees for a minute, that the Yankee Stadium has done everything it can with the information that we have collected from 600 um, medical and scientific bodies, CDC, um, uh, uh, the Health and Human Services, every bit of the latest information is brought together and the Yankees plan is put through the funnel of, of that lens and ultimately we certify it as to being best in class or needs more work. You need to have better, better programs related to uh, 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 cleaning and sanitization or air quality or whatever. And ultimately they get, a, they get a, um, a, a decal for their establishments, for their doors, for the restaurants, for the restrooms and allows them to have for one year until this, because this is a moving target. Information is changing, science is changing, everything we are learning on a daily basis is changing. So every year, this would be a renewable uh, opportunity for them to showcase their commitment to having a place that's safe to return to. Do the Yankees have a chief sustainability officer? Uh, they do. They do. Wow. Um, and now, okay, if it's, if it's an annual thing, how long does it take just to even get the uh, get all the, uh, the evaluation uh, process through to where, I mean, is that something that uh, once you get it, do you have to start right away again? Uh, yeah, or, uh... the, the, good, the good news is all of these, these organizations that have signed up today, and we, we have 
uh, I think a couple of thousand right now around the world. Mm -hmm. um, they have they have already developed their own plans. Probably the first three or four months of COVID, everybody started trying to figure out what do we have to do? How do we keep ourselves safe? They started doing their own investigation. We brought together this body of 600 individuals, which included sur surgeon generals, past surgeon generals in the United States, um, uh, Harvard, Stanford, um, Cle Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic. I mean, just, just this proliferation of really, really bright people. And their information came together and we were able to create this, this protocol for what we call, you know, we, we are very clear to state, will this thing, if I see that label, does it mean I won't get COVID? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. It does not mean that at all. What it means is that this organization has taken a great deal of time and effort to do every single thing that they can do that we understand today that will keep us safe. And ultimately, then there's a there's the 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 uh, opportunity for us to advance from there year to year, make it better and more stringent and safer. Let's I guess just shift the focus. It's still on on that though, but over back toward uh, I guess more uh, directly toward our readers or engineers. Uh, where do you see the engineering community, or how has the engineering community responded so far, or the HVAC community responded so far to the efforts that that uh, that, that you've seen and that you've been part of? And, uh, and I'm sure they play an essential role moving forward now. They absolutely do. And it's, uh, it's, it's somewhat interesting that when, when this all started, um, the attention of the world was all kind of on the idea of surfaces and cleaning and, and hand sanitization and the things that we thought were the way that this virus was being transmitted. We learned in the last year that this is an airborne virus. This is about a vaporiza uh, vaporization and, and droplets that are moving in places in ways that we could never even imagine. We, we could think about it, but it was always in some science fiction movie that we would see those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, I would say, uh, you know, ASHRAE organization for years has tried to keep us safe in a variety of ways. And so understanding you know, what was going on with the sick building uh, uh, framework in the 1970s um, and, and the, uh, the way that ASHRAE addressed that with uh, increased ventilation rates and creating a, a standard and a, and a protocol for safer buildings. Um, that's all happening today. And I think engineers are, are, are at the center of the storm because they're going to be they're going to be the, the ones that uh, have the most um, uh, access to information. They're the ones that can actually do modeling with, with air and, and, and droplets and understand uh, where these problems exist. Um, the, the short story is in the, in the, in the, um, in the Cliff Notes opportunity, uh, we've already learned don't put an air cleaner in the corner of the room, put it in the center of the room. Uh, that does help. Opening windows helps. Being outside more helps. But, but th this is, in, in, in many people, take away the medical side of this, where we have, um, you know, uh, a, a, a doctor involved with an injection and, and are being able to be safe for a while. This is an engineering problem because these viruses will travel on airplanes. They will travel in schools. They will travel on public transportation elements. And how we address those, how we understand patterns of airflow, 
and the ability to disrupt that, to get those things, you know, away from the majority of people in variety of places goes hand in hand with our ability to understand whether or not we need to wear a mask, whether or not we need to continue social distancing, whether or not we need to, um, uh, to use certain things for sanitization afterwards. Those are, it's all part of it, but I would say the engineering community is front and center on this one. Yeah, well, that, and that is exciting, certainly from our, 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 our side of things, the engineering is just the immense opportunity and the, uh, the need as well. I have a lot of engineering friends, Rob, that would say, when have we ever not been at the center <laughs> of everything? That's a good and, point. That's a and good think point. about it. That's, that's kind of true. Yes. Um, and actually, it goes back to what we, what we were talking about a little bit right before um, we started recording, I guess, was just the idea of, from your book and your, and your consulting firm, Greenfin, uh, I think that came out in, in uh, 2015. I know the subtitle on that is How Profit Can Save the Planet. Um, and, uh, and so often... Uh, environmental measures, uh, green measures, I guess, have been maybe, I don't want to say smeared or whatever, but, but try to say dismiss that it's going to be, it's going to hurt the bottom line on projects or on buildings. But it seems like that, uh, that has flipped now as well. And, and I guess, uh, could you speak a little bit to, uh, I guess, that, that whole idea of, 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 of profits and, and, and profitability and, and doing green things? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I got this idea when I when I was working at U.S. Green Building Council, and I thought to myself, you know, I spent 25 years with Carrier Corporation, which was a part of United Technologies. I was a business guy. I have an MBA. I'm not an architect. I'm not an you know an environmental engineer. I'm none of that. But I understood that I could use my skill sets to advance an idea that would ultimately do a tremendous amount of good for the environment. And, and, you know, when I think back and I hear some of the comments and, you know, Paul Hawken, uh, again, who wrote The Ecology of Commerce, wrote a second book later on called Blessed Unrest. And in that book, he says that the U.S. Green Building Council may, uh, may be the single most effective environmental NGO on the planet when you look at the opportunity to remove CO2 from the Earth's atmosphere, toxins from the air and the water, uh, materials uh, saved, recycled, and reharvested, and all the great things that go along with that. I, I was really proud to be part of an organization that actually did something instead of just throwing out white papers to say, hey, maybe this will work, maybe that'll work. No, mm -hmm. these are steps you can take to actually do something today. And, and that's the same kind of thing we're doing with the well health safety rating today. But in this book, I really wanted to outline the idea that, that, that environmentalists and, and business uh, executives are not diametrically opposed. They are, in fact, the, the, uh, the, they, they can, in fact, be um, the best resources for each other and, and, and businesses uh, doing what they can to turn environmental issues around and environmentalists looking to business to help uh, advance certain things in, in, uh, in a world that is in trouble right now. Business is, look at the world we live in today. All of a sudden, and, and let's, let's keep politics way out of this because it's too crazy, but right. we live in a world today where we're waking up and all of a sudden the idea of electric cars is no longer 
some magic language or some foreign thing that we're never going to see in our lifetime. Electric cars are on a threshold of, of in the United States exploding and all these major businesses like, like Ford and GM and others mm -hmm. are going to deliver some of the best electric cars in the world. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we are going to see Ford and GM make a lot of money and they're going to create a lot of jobs and there's going to be a tremendous boon for the automobile industry. Oh, by the way, doing all that, there's going to be a tremendous reduction in CO2, a tremendous reduction in pollution and water uh, uh, pollution, and, and the ability for the environmentalists in the business community to succeed and win on that. Same thing is happening in solar and, and wind energy. Same thing is happening in pr food production. Um, there's so many examples of these businesses kind of joining forces with environmentalists and, and this win-win is the kind of thing that will help us. It is, it is a uh, uh, exciting time, I guess, in, in, at the same time as, as uh, uh, challenging, I guess, is, 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 is certainly the word for it. But um, just looking back, when, when that uh, was the CEO carrier or whenever the, the boss of carrier came to you in the late 80s, could you have envisioned where we are now, I guess, as far as when you talk about those electric cars or just so many of the other or, or all the uh, billions of square feet with with well certification now? Or, can you imagine what how, how could that earlier self have envisioned this? I, you know, I, I, I wish I, I was that smart, Rob. I, I don't think <laughs> I could. I was, I was so laser focused on, you know, when your boss, well, first of all, you know, the idea that the CEO at that point would even have a conversation with me <laughs> was foreign. Then we had this conversation and he, he basically had expectations from me. All mm -hmm. I could think about is how do I deliver that kind of opportunity? And I did deliver something that he was very happy with back to him. What I didn't expect, expect was in my uh, association with what I call authentic environmentalists, people like Amory Lovins from the Rocky Mountain Institute and Bill McDonough from uh, UVA um, and uh, uh, Paul Hawken and Bill Browning from, he was with Rocky Mountain Institute, now runs Terrapin Bright Green. When I became uh, associated with them in the beginning and then friends with them later, I just got wrapped up in this whole world that 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 people could actually marry their their intense passion with their brains and deliver some tremendous outcomes for the future. That their business was in fact the planet, and 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 they could they could get paid for helping to protect it. And that to me was that was like you know that everybody talks about an, an aha moment. That was the aha moment where I'm like, wow, I, you know, I got to go back to Carrier at some point and tell them I'm, I'm not so crazy about just the refrigeration, refrigeration <laughs> cycle anymore. I really want to start thinking broader and, and in a different way. And, and ultimately it all worked out. And when did it even go beyond our shores or did you, uh, when, did you encounter like-minded folks, I guess, overseas or when did it become a global movement? Yeah. It, it, after uh, LEED was introduced to the marketplace, I would say uh, LEED was introduced in 2000. 2001 or 2002, um, we were approached by um, a green building council that wanted to form in Australia, then one that wanted to form in Canada, then one that wanted to form in Italy. And, and one by one, we started, you know, 
these these uh, delegations would show up in our office on a Monday morning, <laughs> and they'd say, "How do we do this? How do we become this? What do we? How do we do all this stuff?" And uh, David Gottfried again had a great idea. He says, "Let's create a World Green Building Council, which essentially will become a council of councils, and they will, in fact, shepherd in all this information at their level and then disseminate it to all these organizations around the world." Because we were a not-for-profit organization, it made sense that we were able to advance this cause all around the world in real time through this other entity called the World Green Building Council. And I chaired that organization for six years. At the same time, I was working at U.S. Green Building Council. Um, and ultimately, the I think the uh, World Green Building Council today, which is run out of London, uh, has 100 uh, green building councils all around the world. Um, and they don't all advance lead. Many of them advance um, um, their local rating tool. Uh, in the UK, it's Briam. In um, Australia, it's Green Star. Uh, in New Zealand, Green Star. South Africa, Green Star. DGMB in Germany. Um, so they're they're different everywhere. The good news is, well, is being taken up by many of them. So mm -hmm. so there's there's one global standard, well, for health and wellness. And that's kind of working through all of the green building world. Well, I guess just for our last question, then just as uh, there's also pushback out there, I guess, from some folks who say, oh, it's just it's too late to try all these things anyway, that 2030 is coming and, and, and various that, that it's that these uh, all these measures are not going to really uh, achieve and not going to save mankind or save the planet. What, what do you say to uh, to people that uh, that push back in that in that direction? Well, I say I say they need to. Uh, uh, go get religion somewhere because, <laughs> you know, come the day, I don't care how bleak anything becomes, come the day we all give up, um, we should all be ashamed of ourselves. There's, there's opportunity everywhere. And the more that people become involved and educate themselves and, 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 and if they need to just study their, their children or their grandchildren and, 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 you know, not, a, not as a platitude or, or some kind of throwaway line, but really think, you know, in 20 years when your grandson is graduating college or, and, and wants to start a family and, and he wants to or she wants to have a child, what is the world going to look like then? If, if, if the southern United States right now has got 119 degrees average temperature and it's not even, you know, it's not even July or August yet. You know, what's that going to be in 25 years unless we start doing something different now? And will we get it all fixed in the next 25 or 30 years? Absolutely not. But we could be on a path for learning more. We could have we could have three strategies that end up needing refinement that end up giving us one really great strategy 10 years from now. So we just have to keep trying. That's all. Okay, that's and that's uh, all we can ever hope, hope for. And I guess, as you say, that the engineers are at the center of this storm too. So I, I, I appreciate that perspective, certainly. Absolutely. Avery Lovins from the Rocky Mountain Institute told me a long time ago, I, I, I said to him at the greening of the White House project, um, what are we gonna do with uh, uh, the refrigerant is being phased out in the United States, these chillers and, the, and, and all of these issues that, that we have associated with the chillers and the efficiency and the toxicity and, the, and, and soon, soon the climate change uh, association. And Amory Lovin said back then, don't worry about it, the engineers will figure it out. <laughs> so God bless the engineers. <laughs>
Well, I can't think of a better uh, better way to end this podcast. So I appreciate your time, Rick. Uh, um, thanks so much for, for that and your insights. And um, um, and hopefully we'll have you back in a year or so and, and do another pulse check. Uh, I'd love it. Where I'd things are. It. My but, pleasure. Yes, thanks for, for joining us. Everybody, listeners, you can look for more relevant uh, content uh, from uh, IWBI or the um, Well Building Institute at wellcertified.com. And uh, check out our previous podcast at HPAC on the air at hpac.com. And please visit our members only section online as well. But again, Rick, thank you so much for your time here today. And uh, um, hopefully we'll have a, a productive and wonderful summer ahead. And, and, and thanks again for, uh, for your inspiring words, sir. Yeah. Thank you, Rob. All right. Take Appreciate care. It. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.